We'll open the Word of God together this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. And I've been preaching through Isaiah to my church back home, Racine Bible Church, and I have just fallen in love with this book. If somebody asks you what book from the Old Testament is quoted the most in the New Testament, the answer to that question is the book of Psalms. But then if they say, what book gets the silver medal, that is Isaiah. This is an important book because it's God's Word. It seems uh, particularly and uniquely important because it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. And the reason I think that Isaiah is a beautiful book is because of the poetry in the book of Isaiah, because of the, uh, the variety of expressions that he uses. He's one of the most creative of all of the biblical writers. But there's a reason that Isaiah is an important book, and there's a reason that you need the book of Isaiah in your life right now. And I'll tell you the reason. Every time somebody's up here preaching the Word of God to you, whether it's me or Ken or Chris or whoever it is, sort of to boil it down and say, what, what are they trying to do? What we're trying to do is to encourage you and help you to place your faith in God. We're saved by faith, but the only way we exist day by day is by faith. And the reason we need ministers of the gospel to exhort us and help us to place our faith in God is because, look, be honest, you struggle to trust God. We all do. There are so many things that we can see that influence us so heavily, and it's difficult at times to trust God, to trust in God whom we cannot see. So then you ask the question, if it's a struggle to trust God, what is the cause of that unbelief. Why do we struggle so much to trust God? That's a great question, and Isaiah answers that question in such a way that our unbelief can be toppled and knocked down and we can grow stronger in faith. The reason that we struggle to trust God is because we see ourselves and our supposed needs very clearly. We're dominated by them, and we can't see God. And even when we do see God and we do hear biblical preaching about God, we sort of think that God is somehow measured by ourselves and our needs and the things that dominate us. And that's why we struggle. It's the nickel that's bigger than the moon. When I was with my grandson recently, our grandkids live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my four-year-old grandson, he's named Spencer, and I showed him that this nickel is bigger than the moon. The moon was huge that night. And we looked at the moon, and it was awesome. And then I, held, I had him hold that nickel just about seven inches, six inches away from his little eye. And I say, see, that nickel is just as big or even bigger than the moon. When we start with ourselves... And then we try to think about God, eh, it will never work. When we start with our problems, the things that are weighing us down, eh, then we think about God, it'll never work. And we enter church, you enter church this morning with problems that are huge in your vision. And I don't mean to denigrate your, the nickel. My church back home, you remind me of them a lot. It's filled with sweet people, kind of people that I spent this weekend with. 
and they have heart-rending problems, family, marriage, money, health. Those, th that nickel is a big deal to you. But when you look at that first and you kind of see God behind it, the circumstances in the self seem so big and God seems so far away. That is going to be your perpetual choice. That's actually the, that's actually the choice that will determine whether you benefit from the preaching of the Word or not. The choice is this, a calm, steady reliance on God who is great or a frenzied, frenetic sort of self-trust that just foments anxiety day after day after day. What will we see when we look for God? We'll see Him in Isaiah 40, and we'll see how grand and how great He is. As we open God's Word any, any, any time that we read God's Word, we always ask God to help us that it might be a supernatural activity. So as we read Isaiah 40, let's pray and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, through your holy living word now, what we know not teaches, and what we have not would you give us, and what we are not make us for the glory of our beloved Savior, your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. I love the first word of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, oh comfort my people. That first word is remarkable. Isaiah 40 is a prophecy written to Isaiah about what will happen to them and, and, and what's happening to them after the Babylonian captivity. And the reason that Israel was brought under captivity to Babylon is because she was guilty, guilty, guilty. And this was a, a chastisement and even a, a discipline and a punishment. And yet the word that God speaks is comfort. Have you ever, when's the last time that you knew you were guilty, guilty, guilty. You felt terrible about what you'd done. And you know that you're going to come up against that authority. I was so scared. This is many years ago now when I was a youth pastor. I borrowed someone's ski boat and took the youth out into the lake. And because I'm me, I drove that ski boat over a huge rock and I wrecked it. And I'm waiting for the guy whose boat it is to come back to the lake so I can tell him what's going to happen. I was so guilty. I felt so bad. Thankfully, he spoke a word of mercy, a word of comfort. Israel, knowing that they deserve the captivity that they're under, what do they hear God say? Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Why should they have comfort? Look at it right there in the text. 
Because God is and because God uses the first person possessive pronoun when he speaks of them. He calls them my people. Because God is and because God still places his name upon them. And thirdly, because verse 2 tells us the war is over, the iniquity has been removed. Because God is, because God calls you his, and because God forgives. That's why you can have comfort in church. Don't miss that. This is, we say this all the time. We sang it in the first song I think that Chris led us with, but let it sink in. God has mercy on sinners. When we deserve condemnation, He brings us comfort. How wonderful is that? We continue our reading in verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then He answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I simply want you to connect the comfort in verse 1 to the last clause in verse 8. The word of our God stands forever. Here's how it works, church. If you want the comfort... Of verse 1, you have to have the confidence of verse 8 that the Word of God stands forever. If you can rest your whole self on the whole Word of God, then you can have that comfort and that confidence. But if you can't, you won't. The problem is, We doubt God's power, we doubt God's promise, we doubt God's Word when the words of man that compose our nickel become so dominant to us and the Word of God seems removed and far away. But it is the Word of man that only flies through as waves for an instant and then perishes. It is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that stands forever. Trusting God's Word is not magic. Trusting God's Word, I don't even think so much that it's an intellectual activity. Trusting God's Word is loyalty to who God is. And I'm not the only pastor who just, sometimes I'm driven up a wall. It's my my people who are a lot like you, sweet people who love me, love the Lord. I'm like, I get 42. Three minutes on Sunday to speak to you from God's Word. And all day, every day, the world is telling you the nickel is so big. The words of people, the words of women, the words of men are so big. But it is the Word of God that has to dominate the internal conversation that you have with yourself. It's the Word of God that has to dominate the emotional register of your own heart and your own spirit, or you'll never have this kind of confidence. Continuing our reading in verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with His might and His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense is before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. 
He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He says in verse 9, get up as high as you can and then cry out as loud as you can. Church, let me tell you this. Please remember it. Never, ever hesitate to brag about God. God's bigger and better than anything you can say about Him. And nobody on this planet, present speaker included, has a big enough view of how great God is. Nobody does. And the church is here to brag about God. Don't, don't ever let the mighty man boast in his might. Don't ever let the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts boast in this, that God is and that God has called me his and that he's forgiven me. The reason God sheds his mercy and his comfort on his people is never so that it will end with his people, right? When God called his people, covenant with Abraham, he says, the reason I'm calling you is not so that my love will stop in you. The reason I'm calling you is so that everyone, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This happens when we proclaim the fame and the wonder and the bigness and the greatness of God. One of the things I love about Isaiah's vocabulary is how contrastive he is with his parallel lines. Did you notice that in verse 10, it says that God's arm rules, like he's muscular. And then he says in verse 11 that that same arm reaches down and gathers the puffy cotton ball little lambs and makes sure that they're all right. Is God a mighty warrior? You, you, you absolutely. Is God a tender shepherd? There's none more tender than he. When we have the Red Sea before us and the Pharaoh's army behind us, we need our God to be a dread warrior, an axe-wielding champion, and he is. And when you have stumbled into the same sin, for the 6,834th time. You need God to reach down and with his fingers just pick you up by the scruff of your neck and pull you close to his heart. And beloved, he does. He does. He is powerful for us and he pities us. He is a champion conquering for us and he is compassionate even medicinal in his care for us. He's almighty over the world, and yet he's all attentive to his little lambs. God's sovereign power is exhaustive, and God's sovereign power is as meticulous and as individualistic as it is cosmic. Indeed, there is none like him. And if I could point out one more little word, it's in verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Again, God uses the possessive personal pronoun in verse 11. He, it's his flock the same way that he used it in verse 1, comfort, oh comfort, my people. So what we are seeing is this doctrinal, all-powerful care of God is personal and individual. It reminds me, it's a goofy, sad, dumb story of the woman who... Uh, had a, had a wonderful vacation planned. I think it was like a European river cruise, expensive. And 24 hours before she had to leave for the trip, she had to cancel the trip. Lost 
the deposit and most of the money. Why did she cancel the trip? She said that she canceled the trip because she couldn't find anyone good enough to watch her little dogs. I'm like, this is Los Angeles, a metropolitan city. Within, within 20 minutes of your house, there are probably over 20 veterinarian on-staff licensed kennels, and none of them are good enough. No, none of them are good enough for my dogs. Church, without, without sentimentalism, don't you think that that's the way Jesus talks about his church? I do. I'm not being sentimental. But if he shed his blood and there was an eternal covenant of salvation that the church would be his, then don't you think that every page of the New Testament bleeds with Jesus saying, no one is good enough to protect my church. I'm going to do it myself. This is how he speaks of us. And the next time some little nickel flips into our life, how dare that cause us to doubt the Savior's guiding, leading, shepherding hand. We continue in verse 13. Isaiah asks unanswerable questions. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as specks of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. I appreciate the questions that Isaiah asks in verses 13 to 15. Talk about favorite verses. Isaiah 40 is one of those chapters where every single verse in the chapter waves up its little fingers when you say, which one of these verses is my favorite? Every single one of the verses raises his little finger and says, pick me, pick me. They're all my favorite, but maybe 13 through 15, and these unanswerable questions are perhaps my favorite. Because he's asking, well, who, who, who taught God anything? When's the last time God had to Google something? Well, I was eating fish tacos last night with Kelly and Ken, and we said, you know, when, when did such and such happen? Somebody got out their phone. When it, well, it happened in 1986. Well, God, the... the the decisions and the knowledge of God, God didn't make His wise decisions in time. God created time so that His all-wise decisions, which are outside of time, could be manifest to little pea brains like us. God's decisions aren't right because there is something called righteousness and God conforms to it. There is such a thing as righteousness because God is. This is how perfect He is. This is how exhaustive his knowledge is. So you tell me, well, well, who directs him? Nobody. Who informed him? Nobody. But don't you think that verse 13 implies that we question God? We try to direct him? Second half of the parallelism in verse 13, we try to counsel him. 
I'm happy the church has a biblical counseling ministry. It's not that happy when most of the members of the church try to counsel God. Not a good idea. It's it's totally fine to pour out your desires to Him. That's what prayer is. You're a little child, and there are things you want, and it's, it's desirable and necessary to talk to your daddy about the things that you want. But you are not counseling him how to run his household. That's outside of your purview. And I also think that verse 15 implies that we absolutely lose our stuff when the nickel of the nations just seems so big. Christian people talk like if the wrong politician gets elected at the wrong time, like the universe is going to end. Or Christian people freak out like if, if my boss does these things at work, there's just like, there's just... We, we're, we're up against bad circumstances and we vote for certain people we want and, and we, want our, we want our workplaces to run a certain way, but don't let our fear of those things that are happening become the nickel that eclipses God. All of the politicians in all of the world are less than a drop in one bucket. There's an old word for those who teach and inform and counsel God. It's the old English word insolence. That is an insolent behavior to give God advice. To suggest to God a better way of doing things. But we all do it all the time. Because of God's omniscience and because of God's eternal fullness, He is actually and utterly and strictly, it is actually strictly impossible for us to inform God of anything or to counsel God about anything. To summarize the questions in verses 13 through 15 is to say, simply to say this. Here it is in a sentence. Don't hold God up to your standards. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't hold God up to your standards. Don't hold God up to some finite man-made standard. And when those painful nickels arise in our lives... And let me say again, as a pastor to sweet people like you are, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that that nickel is not deeply painful and that the tears that you weep over it are salty and hot. They are, these, the, the issues that happen in our lives. But when these things happen, we always struggle to say, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing this to me? I'm asked that on the regular as a pastor, and I've, I haven't yet become a pastor who can answer that question. I went to school with Ken, tried not to cheat off him. But even in school, at a good seminary like the one that we went to, uh, God didn't teach me why He does everything that He does. And certainly, He didn't teach me in the unique exigencies and circumstances of your life why things roll out the way they do. I don't know that. So when my folks ask me why God did what He did, I'm not really able to answer that, but I am capable of speaking to them about who God is. Therein lies the answer, at least the only answer our hearts need. Trying to figure out exactly why He's doing what He's doing is a, is a loser's game. 
has played with our own dim reason. One old hymn has helped me. It was, we, we sang it, or our forefathers sang it in the 1800s. We don't sing it anymore. It was titled, When, when My Dim Reason. When my dim reason would demand why this or that thou dost ordain, by some vast deep I seem to stand, whose secrets I must scan in vain. When doubts disturb my troubled breast and all is dark as night to me, here on this solid rock I rest, that so it seemeth good to thee. You are God and you are good. Continue our reading in verse 16 through verse 21. Even Lebanon's not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who's too impoverished for that offering selects a tree that doesn't rot, and he seeks for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The comparison in verse 16 is stunning if you let yourself think about it. When the Old Testament talks about the cedars of Lebanon, what the Old Testament is saying is all of the mightiest, most massive trees in all of the world. And we're meant to picture in verse 16 the, the size and the heat of the conflagration if all of the lumber and all of the timber in all of the world were to burn. And what he says is, that fire wouldn't be enough for a burnt offering which would satisfy a God who is as holy as our God. And I don't know exactly where ended the parameters of the authorial intent of Isaiah the prophet, but I'm willing to at least make an intelligent guess that when he wrote verse 16 about the burnt offering, the sin offering that would satisfy God, in his mind, he put an ellipsis toward Isaiah 53. Because church, even though all of the wood in all of the world couldn't burn hot enough to satisfy the death or, or, or the debt owed for sin, there was to come one set of human shoulders and one human forehead scarred by thorns that would receive the unimaginably livid fire of God Almighty at Golgotha and would satisfy for us and for our salvation. And the questions in verses 21 and 22 do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heaven like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he blows on them, 
and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Lord God. These verses are telling us that human efforts to contain God or control ultimate outcomes wither and fail before they are even hatched because He's God and He's in control. And I want to mark out the name by which Isaiah characteristically calls God, and it's in the end of verse 25, the Holy One. The qualifier holy appears, of course, all over the Old Testament. But Isaiah is the one book where the qualifier holy is attached to the name of the Lord more than any other book. The holy God or the holy one or the holy one of Israel is Isaiah's thematic and programmatic title for God. It's central to everything that he's telling us about theology proper. Commentator uh, Alec Matier makes this note about this verse, the, 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 he says, the killing blow to any thought of comparison is not God's power or God's wisdom or God's sovereignty or God's authority. The killing blow to any thought of comparison is the unattainable, unassailable moral perfection of God. It is His holiness. Oh, we're in awe of His power. We're in awe of His authority. We're in awe of His wisdom, but it is His holiness above all else. And so we continue in verse 26, he enjoins us to lift up our eyes. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created the stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his power and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. How marvelous is it that God names the stars? That's what it says in verse 26. Isaiah is always making a diatribe against the idols of the Canaanites, the Babylonians, you can read all about it in 2 Kings. The Canaanites and the Babylonians named all the stars and then had some sort of religious things about all of the stars. And Israel started to follow their way. And Isaiah is saying the names of the stars that the Babylonian uh, idolaters named the stars with are not the stars' actual names. But the stars do have names, and it is God who called them by their names. This is so important because of the question of verse 27. Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Verse 27 is actually the core principle of the chapter. One way to read this chapter is what we would call the literary genre of disputation. There is a dispute or an argument on the floor and different advocates can speak what's the right or the wrong point of the argument. And the disputation of Isaiah 40 is found right there in verse 27. It is that Israel has said two things. Our way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due us has escaped from the Lord. Because Israel sees the nickel. The first statement in verse 27 uh, limits God's 
let's say, vision or power. His way is hidden from us. The second statement even is an experiential limitation upon God's goodness. God's righteousness isn't taking care of me right now, they're saying, because that's how they feel. I love the old King James version of verse 27. Why speakest thou thus? Uh, sister, brother, if you say something and God Almighty says to you, why speakest thou thus? He doesn't want you to tell him why you said that. He wants you to shut up. Is what he wants. Why speakest thou thus? And behind it, this follows the diatribe against the idols. He's like, you made an idol and it was gonna, it was gonna totter. So you had to get someone who knew how to work with wood, like put a shimmy under it, you know, to keep it going. He's like, what Isaiah is saying in verse 27 is, you should speak this way. If that block of wood was your God, then go ahead and speak thus. It is fitting for someone with a block of wood as his or her God to speak thus. But your God is God. How dare you speak that way, he says. Never. It's, it's, Isaiah's flabbergasted that the people of God, the Holy One of Israel, would speak this way. It makes absolutely no sense because every verse leading up to 27 and every verse after 27 proves that God is and that God is good and that God is great. Isaiah is, you understand this to say Isaiah is exasperated as, and even if you don't know memes or watch the news very much, you know this meme. It's probably the most famous one in the last three years. Reporter saying into the microphone, the city is experiencing mostly peaceful protests. And behind the reporter, they're looting a target. They're bloodying each other and bludgeoning each other half to death. And, th and that's what the speaker said. That's how verse 27 stands out in Isaiah 40. Every other verse in the chapter proves that, this, that, that no sentient human being should ever speak thus. And yet we do. Because to us, the nickel's bigger than the moon. I think Isaiah would agree with the robin and the sparrow. You know that old, it's a beautiful little children's poem. I think adults need it more than kids. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why those anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow, to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. He, he names the stars. He knows where every sparrow's nest is, but he calls you my people. Why would we ever speak thus? our great God. And then reading through to the end, verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Here it is in a sentence, right? There is no danger. 
that God will not be enough to meet your needs. The danger is that your needs will overwhelm your vision, your heart, your intention, your volition, and you won't see God. He says, wait on the Lord. We all know how often that expression, wait on the Lord, is found in the Old Testament. And we all know what it means. We just wince when we think about it. Because it means not only that you rely on God's strength, but what waiting on the Lord means is that not only do you rely upon God's strength, but you resist your own timing and you rely upon His. Aye, there's the rub. All the questions in the chapter are getting at that. The danger is not that God will forget us. The danger is not that God will not come through. The danger is that our obsession with our own timing and our own will and our own counsel to God will make us deaf and blind to God's greatness and God's glory. Week by week, we walk into church knowing our troubles, beholding our troubles. And I, as I said, I don't mean to denigrate the difficulty of those troubles, marriage troubles, pr prodigal kids, money, cancer, or the rest of it. It is trouble. And we need Christian friends to weep with us, and we need biblical counsel to help us through those troubles. But the trouble behind the trouble is that week by week, we walk into church seeing and beholding those troubles, and we do not behold the living God. And so, as the singular point of application, all that is left for me to say is church, be little and rejoice exuberantly that God is so big. Let's pray. Living God, as we have opened your holy and living word, what we have not known, now you've taught us by your good spirit and what we are not yet you are making us by your sanctifying influence in our lives. And what we don't yet have, you give us by the goodness of Jesus Christ that he might be glorified in his church. We pray, amen.